Um, I, while we're standing, we might as well go ahead and go to the scripture. Uh, Philippians 1, verses 19 and 20 is where we're going to start. I want to tell you something funny that happened. Is everybody okay with something funny? Okay. You know, if you have children or if you've spent time around children, you know they are really good at knocking you down a couple pegs, right? They're brutally honest. And I was in the car on the way to church, and Lakin and Leo were in the back seat, and we were jamming out to a song. And I started singing, and she goes, she goes, Dad, you don't sing very good. That's why you play the drums. I was like, ow. I had one of those like, wow, that hurt, man. Brutally honest. My heart is still healing from that one this morning. But, man, she hit me good this morning. I was feeling good before that. And then, whoop, feel about this big after something like that. Oh, man, it was funny. It's true, though, I don't sing well. (laughs) So she wasn't lying. All right, Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. I have a couple verses in New King James Version, a couple in NASB. I'll try my best to remind you which version we're using. But this scripture um, is Paul writing to the Philippian church. And he says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Thank the Lord for Jesus and what pastor preached before, if you weren't in spirit life, you missed out because we were having a party about the name of Jesus. Uh, so he talks about the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation, that's a phrase that we'll all want to remember, my earnest expectation and hope, that's a word that we're going to talk about, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always. So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Today, what we're going to talk about is expecting. Expecting something to happen. Expecting something to change. Expecting God to do something. And we're going to deal with these words that Paul uses when he talks about his earnest expectation and hope. Let's all lift our hands and just open with a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the opportunity that we get to learn more about you, Jesus. Thank you for the time that we get to spend together and to dive into your scripture. Lord, I just pray that you'd open our hearts and minds to receive exactly what you want us to receive. And Lord, let it be your word that goes forth. No words in the flesh, no words of mine, Jesus, but let me just step to the background and you step forward and do your work today. God, I give you everything and we give you everything today in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can all be seated. You can all be seated. As most of you probably know, um, you know, Tasha and I are expecting our third child. So this thought, yeah, (laughs) thank you. Thank you. We're expecting our third. So this thought kind of hit me this week, and God just started dealing with me about that word expecting. And if you've had children before, you know that feeling that you get when the baby is almost here. It's almost like a, uh, like an excitement, a, a nervousness, a, an anticipation that something really cool is about to happen, that new life is about to be born. And it's a really awesome feeling. And there's a reason why we use that term expecting when we talk about a, a woman who's, who's with child. She is expecting. Because we know that there is a, a high probability, especially in the day that we live with the medicine that we have and you know, the, the doctors that we have, there's a very high probability that uh, a new life is going to be born. So we expect 
that it's going to happen. We anticipate that it is going to happen. So Paul uses this, this same thought, the same pattern of thinking when he talks about hope all throughout the New Testament. If you, can, if you recognize Paul's writing, it's very specific. He, he uses very similar words, similar phrases over and over again. So it makes it easy to kind of pick out his writing versus somebody else. And there's a word that shows up over and over again in the letters that he wrote to the church, and it's hope. He uses this word hope over and over again to get a point across. And actually, in, in, in the original Greek, when he writes about his earnest expectation in Philippians here, what it means is in, in, an intense anticipation. So this feeling, you know, we use that term, uh, a pregnant moment, like that moment that you feel like something is about to happen and, and you're almost on edge, like you're about to jump off the cusp of a, of a cliff and that something's gonna change, that pregnant moment. Sometimes when pre- preachers like to use that, they'll make a really powerful statement and then just stop. And everybody gets that feeling like, ah, oh, he's about to say something or something's about to happen. But Paul uses that um, to explain what he means uh, when he uses the word hope. Hope is not just the way that we use it today. A lot of times when we use the word hope, what we really mean is wish. I wish that something good would happen to me, or, or I hope that it will. And, you know, even my boss at work, you know, I work for the bank, and one thing that she says all the time, and it bothers me, she says, hope is not a strategy. And, and I understand what she means. Wishing for something to happen is not a strategy. But when you apply what hope really means from Scripture, and we'll talk about that in a minute, hope is a strategy. Because what hope really means, what Paul is really talking about, hope is not just, I wish one day that, that I'll make it into heaven. I hope, you know, that I just barely make it in. He's not talking about that. What he is saying is that I have confidence that it is going to happen. I fully expect that God is going to do what he said he would do. That's what hope is. So hope is a strategy. You know, like when you start to see right before the baby's born, those the labor, the, the pains, the, the things that come like right before a baby is born, you know in that moment that something amazing is going to happen. And, and this idea of expectation and hope brings with it the connotation of preparing for something to happen. Think about this. I mean, uh, even in humanity, we see, has anybody ever heard of the term nesting when a woman is, <laughs> is, is expecting this nesting that happens? It's this instinct of preparation. It's anticipating that a baby is going to be born, so we prepare for that child to enter the world. We, we get the nursery ready. We get, you know, start baby-proofing the house, and there's this whole preparation that comes along with it. And that's what Paul is talking about when he, when he says that he has this earnest expectation and hope that God would be glorified in his body. So what he's saying is that God is going to do something. I know that full well. I'm fully confident. So I am going to prepare for what God is going to do. I'm going to do what I need to do as a Christian, as someone who walks with God, to prepare for God to answer the prayer or to prepare for God to draw the souls. I'm going to do what I can to prepare to get into heaven. There's this whole aspect of preparation when we talk about hope, that we know full well God is going to do what he said he would do. So today, what we're going to talk about, this is not an exhaustive list, but 
I want to just share with you three, way, three things that we can expect God to do. Three things. That God will save, that God will transform, and that God will bring victory. This is not an exhaustive list. This isn't the only things that you can expect God for. Because God, we also know he's a prayer answerer. He listens to us, and if he gives us a promise, he will bring it to pass because God doesn't lie. But for the purposes of today, we're just going to focus on those three things, that God will save, God will transform, and God will bring victory. So to illustrate these three points, we're going to talk about the, what's called the most elastic word in the Bible. Does anybody know what that word is? The most elastic word in the Bible, salvation. Because salvation, the reason why they say it's the most elastic word in the Bible is because it doesn't just apply to one moment. It's actually salvation throughout our life. We see when we're filled with the Holy Ghost and we're baptized in Jesus' name, salvation just occurred, or at least the first step of salvation. So God saved. But then throughout our whole life, God is saving us. And then at the very end, when we see that final victory and we step into eternity and get into heaven, God saves us or will save us. So it's used in, it basically covers your past, your present, and your future. Pastor already mentioned it this morning, but salvation is not just one moment. It's to cover your past, it's to cover right now, and it will cover in the future. That's why we call it the most elastic word in the Bible. But we can count on God saving, God transforming, and God bringing victory to his people. We know that he will do this. So first, we expect God, or we're expecting God to save. Psalm 55, verses 16 and 17. This is in the New King James Version. This one says, As for me, I will call upon the Lord, and the Lord shall, receive, shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. David had a very intimate understanding of God in the Old Testament. When you read a lot of his writings, it looks like New Testament writing because of the, the revelation that he had about God. He talks about how God is his salvation, how God will save him, how God will listen to him. And, and David, even uh, one of the first people in the Old Testament, uh, recognized that God didn't intend or didn't really want or really need those sacrifices from animals. Like David said that, that sacrifices are all good and well, but it's really an obedient heart that God is looking for. He had such a revelation of God. But the, the one theme you see him write about all the time is salvation, how God saves him and how God will save him and how God saved him in the past. We see all three of those terms in what David writes. So he understood that salvation only comes from God. God is salvation. Pastor, when you were teaching this morning, you were pretty much all over this, man. But, but God saves, and it's only through him that salvation comes. But then we also see in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2. This is in the NASB version. says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. So Isaiah also recognized that God doesn't just bring salvation, but he is salvation. He didn't just send somebody to save. He walked himself the life that he needed to to save because he is salvation. At the very core of what God is, is redemption and salvation. We see that throughout the Bible, that God's ultimate plan 
is to restore his creation to the original creation, the Garden of Eden. When he created that and created Adam and Eve, that was his original plan. But since sin came into the world, God had to make a way so that he could restore and redeem the corruption that happens in the world now so that then we can have salvation. So he is salvation. So understanding that God is salvation means that we can understand that God can and will save his people. He didn't just save once, but he continually saves. In that first moment, when we encounter the presence of God, and we'll get to Acts 2.38, because y'all know I can't preach a message without talking about Acts 2.38, but we'll get there in a minute. But the, those first steps, we get to experience what salvation really feels like. So for most of us here, God saved us. We're living in that, in that middle ground where God is saving us. Some of us maybe haven't experienced that first step yet, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. And if you haven't, today is your day. Today is the day to experience salvation for the first time if you haven't before. When we walk through salvation, in a sense, in those first steps, we have been saved. So Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and 39. Y'all know this is our bread and butter right here. Peter said to them, repent and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or the forgiveness, this version says forgiveness, of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So we see once again that God is salvation right here. He calls us to himself. Scripture says, as we talked about in Spirit Life last week, that, that Jesus even said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. He was talking about that, that moment on the cross. That he was going to be lifted up from the earth. But then we see that it is God who brings the salvation. There's no words that I can say. There's no way that I could persuade you and save you. Humans cannot do that. It's only from the precious blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross that a human can experience salvation. But God wants to save all people. You know, there, there's a beautiful scripture that Peter writes. And Peter was writing about the promise of salvation and what Jesus had done. And what Peter says is that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. If you, if you read the King James, it, says, it uses that word slack. You can also think of it as slow to fulfill. But the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, or as some men count slackness. That's what Peter, the language Peter uses. In other words, the Lord is not slow to accomplish what, what he said he would do. He's, he doesn't delay like some people do. He doesn't give a promise and then make you wait, you know, years and years and years. Sometimes that happens because it's in the right time of God. But when it's talking about salvation specifically, God fulfills that promise the minute somebody wants it and the minute somebody understands it. So God doesn't delay. And then he goes on to say that it is not the will of God that any should perish, but all come to repentance. In other words, God does not want anybody to be in eternal separation from him. That's not what he wants. It hurts his heart when that happens. And unfortunately, there are some cases where it does because sin has entered the world. But we have a promise from God 
that if we reach out to him and if we turn to him and pray in the name of Jesus, like Pastor taught about this morning, salvation can come to every soul. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what you did. It doesn't matter your background. Salvation can come to any soul, and it is God's will to save everyone. There are no exclusions. God wants to save everybody. So God doesn't want anybody to, to be eternally separated from him. He wants everybody to come to repentance and to walk through salvation. We can expect that God will continue to save people through that Acts 2.38 message. So what do we do? If we can expect that God is going to do this, then what do we do? Well, I would say as the church, we prepare. We make the doors open. We get ready for the influx of souls. We get ready to teach Bible studies. We educate ourselves in scripture. We get close to God so we can show God's glory to people who have never seen the glory of God before. Because we're gonna get to that in a little bit about how we're reflections of the glory of God. But we have to prepare. That means that we have to have our daily commitment to God on lock. Doesn't mean we're gonna be perfect. But it does mean that we are striving to live for God every single day. This is how we prepare. When we've already walked through Acts 2.38, we need to prepare to share that with others. We need to prepare to accept with open arms anybody that walks through these doors that's seeking the face of God. We better be ready because God is doing something. I don't know if, if you've seen it or not, but God is doing something. He always is. So we need to be prepared for it. We need to be ready. And I'm so thankful that if you've stuck around LifeSpring long enough, you, I hope that you have seen the, the vision and the passion that this church has for, to just open our arms to whoever God is going to bring. I'm so thankful to be a part of a church like that because there are times where churches are like us four and no more. We don't really need anybody else, but that's not the mission and purpose that God has given the church. God has given the purpose and the mission to the church to teach and make disciples of all nations. We can't have that us for and no more mentality because God wants to save. And, as, and anybody who wants to be saved, God will save. So once we walk through that, those initial steps, that Acts 2.38, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and you're filled with the Holy Ghost, then you, you transition into a new area of your walk with God. Now you are being saved. This is where we can count on God to transform. We can expect that God will transform. So God is currently saving us. We call this in, you know, theology or Bible study. If you see the word sanctification, that's what you can think about, that God is saving, that we are being sanctified. We're being molded into the image of God or transformed. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 in the NASB says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold on to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. You see that big old word, sanctification. Paul really likes that word too. If you read the, the epistles, he really likes to use the word sanctification because keep in mind, who is he writing to in the epistles? 
those who have been saved, and they're in the process of being saved. He's writing to the church, the ones who had received the Holy Ghost, who had been baptized in the name of Jesus. So now he starts using this language of a process, a transformation that happens after you walk through that, those initial steps. He uses this word sanctification. So Paul's writing about sanctification to the Thessalonians, and he talks about salvation through sanctification, how we are being saved. This process begins the moment that somebody is baptized and receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification begins. So this is the process of becoming like Jesus. Because we all know, has anybody read about Jesus before? Anybody read about Jesus? Just a few times, yes. A couple times. And then has anybody looked at what you've read about Jesus and then looked at yourself and thought, does that line up? Most of the time, no. <laughs> Except when Jesus is flipping the tables, because I can identify with that sometimes. But it's true. And unfortunately, we're dealing with flesh. You know, that's a, that's a nice biblical word, flesh and carnality and all this. Well, all it means is that we're dealing with our corrupt humanity. And unfortunately, when we're here on this earth, the world is corrupted. We see that in the, in the Garden of Eden when, when Adam and Eve sinned, they disobeyed God. Sin entered the world. Paul reveals that to us in the New Testament that by one man, sin entered the world. I'm talking about Adam. And now, unfortunately, that sin is carried through every generation that has ever existed on the face of the earth from Adam and Eve. So that means that naturally, our natural tendency is to lean away from God in the flesh. We lean into darkness. So when we see Jesus and we've walked through repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, and being filled with the Holy Ghost, it's not like your life is perfect all of a sudden. It's not like all of a sudden you're a perfect reflection of Jesus and you're good for the rest of your life. We still have to be transformed. And we can expect that God will transform us. So this process, I think Pastor even mentioned it, and he talked about like a metamorphosis a couple weeks ago, but Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, if y'all know me, this is like my favorite verses of scripture in the Bible. In the NASB version, it says, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I like, I like the way the NASB says that because it is worship when you give your life to God. And do not be conformed to this world or don't change your behaviors to match what you see around you. Don't change your behaviors so that you match the sinful lifestyle of others. Don't be like the world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So a transformation has to occur. And again, Paul is writing to Romans, people who had been filled with the Holy Spirit, and they still needed to hear this message of transformation because it is a lifelong process to be saved. It is a lifelong process. It's not one moment you got your ticket into heaven and now you're good, you can live however you want your whole life. It's not that at all. It's a journey with the Lord. And in that journey, he makes us to look more like him. How precious is that? That we can look at our life and see how messed up and broken it is 
And yet God loves us so much that he leads us through life and transforms us to be more like him so that we can love the way that he loves, so that we can, uh, you know, identify with the way that Jesus ministered to people and we can minister to others and be servants and be leaders at the same time. It's amazing. So during this sanctification process, we enter a metamorphosis. And Pastor used this illustration. We all know the caterpillar and the butterfly. I don't know if you can say caterpillar now. (laughs) That was funny. But the caterpillar and the butterfly... We all know that, you know, the, butter, the, the caterpillar is not a butterfly. Don't look anything like a butterfly, but it has to go through a change. And then it turns into something, uh, honestly, almost unrecognizable from a caterpillar. Totally different. Can any of you identify with that? You look at your life now. You've been living with the Lord for a little while, and you look back before B.C., before Christ, and you're like, <laughs> I don't, and, and you're like, I I don't even recognize that person anymore. That's what God does. That's the goodness of God. That's the mercy of God. That he changes us so that we don't have to live the way we used to. But that transformation oftentimes is very uncomfortable and painful. It hurts because there's a lot of things in our life that we're holding on to that have no place really in our relationship with God. And God has to show us, give us the strength to let go of some things. And sometimes God's got to cut some things out. And that's painful. You think about the potter's clay. I love the illustration when, when God told it was Jeremiah, right? To go down to the potter's house and I'll speak to you there. And, you know, Jeremiah is watching this guy spin the wheel, you know. And if you've thrown pottery before, you know there are times that you got you to pop the bubbles that show up in the, in the clay you got to cut some of the hard clay off. you got to smash it, reform it. you got to do all of this stuff just to get it so that it will make it through the fire. Because if you got, if you got bubbles in the clay and you put it through the kiln, it cracks and breaks. It's no good. So you see this transformation. A ball of clay turns into a beautiful pottery. What's amazing to that, this is the part that I love, is that even though the potter has to cut stuff, pop bubbles, smash it down, build it up again, smash it down, build it up again, put pressure on it. What's amazing about the illustration is that the potter's hands never leave the clay. And that's the beautiful thing about our transformation process in our life is that even when it hurts, when you feel the pressure, when you feel the pain of something being cut out, God's hands have never left you. They're still molding you and making you into what he wants you to be. I love that analogy because it really encapsulates what it means to be transformed in the hands of God. He is the artist and we're the clay. And he wants to make us to be more like him. Look at this scripture. There's a really cool scripture. I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians 3, verse 12 through 18. It's a long one, so please bear with me. Wrap your attention around these scriptures. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. See that word again, hope. We use great boldness in our speech, and we are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not stare at the end of what was fading away. Does anybody understand what he's talking about here, this verse? Have you ever read that scripture in Exodus when Moses was in the presence of God, and he beheld the glory of God as much as he could without dying? And he came off the mountain and the Bible says that his face was shining. 
And he had to put a veil over his face because the children of Israel were afraid. What they were seeing was the reflection of God's glory through Moses in that, that him, his face glowing, but they were afraid. So Paul is referencing that and he's gonna make a really strong point here. But their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. That hardness of mind, that veil that, that makes the vision really fuzzy, that hides certain revelations is removed when you come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Pastor, you talking about the revelation of the name of Jesus? When you come into Christ, God lifts the veil so you can see his glory, so you can understand scripture, so you can learn more about him. That veil is lifted in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. And whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And then this verse is really cool. But we, but we all with unveiled faces. So the ones that are in Jesus Christ, the veil has been removed. We all with unveiled faces looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. We love to use that phrase. If you've been in, especially Pentecostal churches, we're going from glory to glory. We like that phrase. But do you understand what it's saying? Do you understand what that means? It's talking about a transformation, a progression from one level of glory to the next level of glory to the next level of glory. What it's showing, Paul is saying, that as you walk with the Lord in Jesus Christ, as you're living for him, you're on a journey. And what God does is that when he gives you victory, you go to another level of glory. And then he'll take you through another challenge, give you victory, you'll go to another level of glory. All the while, you are looking more and more like Jesus. You are going from one level to the next, and God graduates. The Bible says that if we humble ourselves, he is the one who exalts us, that he is the one who wins the victory for us, that he is the one who changes us and transforms us. Therefore, he takes us to different levels in glory all throughout our life so that one day we can look at Jesus face to face. The Bible says that when we enter into eternity, so right now we're like looking through a glass darkly. We, we don't have that full, we can't see that full revelation of the glory of God yet. But one day when we enter into eternity, we will behold him face to face. That's what scripture says, that we will behold the fullness of his glory in eternity. So right now we're progressions, we're works in progress, but one day we'll be made perfect. So what do we do? If we expect that God's gonna transform us, what do we do? We yield to the hands of the potter. We let God do what he wants to do. And how do we do that? Because that's hard. That's hard. When they just say, give it to God, how do I do that? Because sometimes you don't really understand how to give it to God. In my experience, what we do to prepare for these moments in our life Stick with Jesus. Say the name of Jesus when stuff gets hard. Plead the blood of Jesus on everything. Call on his name. Study his scripture. Study what he wants, what he desires, and not try to manipulate the Bible to you know, match the way we want to live, but change our life to match the way he wants us to live. That's how you prepare for that transformation. It doesn't make it easy because it's hard. 
but it sure helps our understanding. Especially if we can full well expect that God is gonna take us through some difficult times to teach us some lessons so that we can be transformed to be more like him. But the last thing is that we can expect God to bring victory. In other words, God will save us, future tense. God will save us. We've talked about how God saved in the past, the initial steps of salvation. We've talked about how God is saving us through sanctification, that transformation. But God will save his people as well. We have promises all through scripture where God brings victory. We see it especially in the Old Testament. Read the book of Joshua for a moment. And you can see victory after victory that God promised, that God fought battles, that God did this, God did that, God made the walls of Jericho fall, God beat armies, all of this. You can see all of these things that Joshua had to live through, and it's all to the glory of God. He promised them, I will bring victory. Future tense. Now, John 16 and 33 in the NASB version says, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. So Jesus gives them this long discourse if you read John 16, and he talks about some difficult things. But then he says, these things have I spoken to you, that in me you will have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. That's a guarantee that when you live in this life, it's going to be hard. But take care, courage. That's what Jesus says. Even though it's going to be hard, take courage. Don't be afraid. I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world. So what do we need to be afraid of? Nothing. Especially when we speak the name of Jesus. Because at the name of Jesus, as pastor said, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. At the name of Jesus, sickness flees. At the name of Jesus, darkness flees and trembles. At the name of Jesus, the enemy is cast out. At the name of Jesus, we can overcome Satan, hell, death, everything. In the name of Jesus, he will bring victory. You can expect that in your life. Doesn't matter what you're facing, doesn't matter what mountain needs to be cast out, he will bring victory or he will save. But Jesus made this promise to the disciples, and I believe it extends to us today too, that they would have peace and victory. Peace in a moment of trouble and tribulation. How is that even possible? Because you all know, when you go through, we ain't got no money in the bank account. Y'all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> when you're sick, when you're going through stuff, darkness, depression, anxiety, whatever it is, you know peace is not a natural human emotion in those times. But that's why Jesus says, take courage. I have overcome the world. You don't have to worry. In other words, you don't have to worry. Jesus already took care of it. You don't have to be afraid because Jesus has already overcome everything. Think about what Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6. You imagine having this revelation of Jesus. You're standing, you know, in the altar, hanging out, praying, whatever, he was in the temple, and all of a sudden, his eyes are open to the spiritual. And what did he see? He saw the Lord high and lifted up, is what the scripture said, and his train filled the temple. You imagine seeing that. Do you think you would ever be afraid of anything else after you see an image like that? Because the Bible also tells us that the train that filled the temple, we understand that today, well, if we just looked at that and didn't know what it meant, we wouldn't really understand it. But in that day, it was a representation of God's victory. 
His train was so long because he had conquered every king, every principality, every power, whatever it is, and that train was a symbol showing that he has already won the victory. Already won the, think about this. Back in Isaiah's time, he already won the victory for you. Back in Isaiah's time, he already beat every enemy that could ever come against you. Back in Isaiah's time, thousands of years ago, God already won the victory. And I would venture to say that before the earth was even created, God already won the victory. Because scripture says that he is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Before the foundations of creation were laid, he was slain and he won victory. So you can expect that God will bring victory. We have this promise while we're still here on the earth. 1 John chapter 4 and 4 in the NASB. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. I love how, how John writes this because he tells them that they overcame them in, in, in past tense, that they have already overcome even while they're living probably in persecution, trouble, all kinds of stuff that was going on in the, in the New Testament church, the early church, John gives them this encouragement that you have overcome them already because you're from God. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So there is nothing to worry about while we're here on this earth. And easier said than done, I understand. I understand, easier said than done. But there's nothing to worry about because God will bring victory. And a lot of times it don't look the way that we want it to look. I heard somebody say uh, this weekend, I think I was talking to Pastor, Pastor Chris Schmidt uh, in Monroe because um, we were at that funeral. Thank you for, for all your prayers for my wife's family and Tanya. Um, but we were at that funeral and I remember I was chatting with, uh, with Brother Schmidt and we were talking kind of about this, not specifically, but kind of. And he was saying, you know, it's interesting how God answers our prayers. And many times it doesn't look at all like what we asked for. And he was telling this story about when he was younger and, and just coming into the church. And he said he was having trouble like balancing it all. You know, new convert. He was working a ton, trying to go to church. And he said he remembers the conviction he felt <laughs> when uh, Pastor Putnam would say to him, hey, I missed you on Sunday night. Like nothing bad. It's not like he was being pressured to be at church, but he remembers he felt convicted about that and he was working and he prayed, God, just do something so I can make it to church on Sunday nights. You know what happened to him? Lost his job. <laughs> but you know what? He had a lot of time to go to church. It's a little bit of a joke. He was, he was serious and now looking back at his life, he can say, that man, God answered that prayer, not in the way I would have wanted it to happen, but God definitely answered the prayer. So sometimes victory looks so different than what we would ever expect it to look like. Sometimes God answers a prayer and you're like, good Lord, this looks like a problem. But in reality, the blessing is in the problem because God knows exactly what he is doing. And we have the promise that he works all good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. We have that promise. So victory looks different. It can look so different for people, but you can expect that God will bring it. And I would be remiss without mentioning the final victory that we will all experience. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses five, or I'm sorry, 
uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 through 57. In the NASB version, it says this, but when this perishable puts on the imperishable and this mortal puts on immortality, then will come about the saying that it is written, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh man, one day, one day when we step off this earth and into eternity, that's what Paul's talking about. When our perishable, the stuff, our bodies, our life, it's coming to an end at some point. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, when we leave this life and enter into eternity, we will finally be able to experience this revelation that death has been swallowed up in victory. God has already won the victory. When he put on flesh, came to this earth, died on the cross, sat in the grave for three days and was resurrected, he has the keys of death, hell, and the grave, as Revelation says. So he has won even that final victory. Even death now has become a victory. And we see Paul saying over and over again that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. That even the thing that can cause so much sorrow that God never intended to happen, he's turned that into a victory. Because when we leave this earth, if we have been saved and we were being saved, we will be saved when we enter into eternity. We will be saved once and for all where there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more pain. Tasha and I were talking to Lakin about this yesterday because you know she was having a hard time understanding the, the whole funeral that, that she had just been a part of. And she was really, she cried the entire time. And she didn't even know that Spencer, but she cried. She felt that, that sorrow and didn't understand, didn't know how to process it. So we took time on the way home to share with her what heaven is gonna be like. That even the end, when we're walking with Jesus, the end becomes a victory and becomes a new beginning. It's not death and it's over forever. It's death and new life. That's the way Jesus works. So we took time to share with her about the gold roads that we're going to see, the pearly gates, the being in the presence of God, that there will be no sun, no moon, because God himself, Jesus, will be the light, that there will be no sorrow, there'll be no more pain, there's going to be no hurt of loss anymore. When we enter into those gates, we get to be with Jesus forever. I'm going to wrap this up. Pretty quick, y'all can stand. <sighs> expecting, we can expect that God saves. We can expect that God will save, that God can save, that he does. We can expect that we'll be transformed when we walk with him. We won't, be, we won't even recognize the people that we were when God first saved us. And we can expect to win the victory while we're here in this life and when we get to eternity. We hope, I'm using that word hope, we hope therefore we prepare because we know it's gonna happen that God saves, transforms, brings victory. We expect, therefore we prepare by walking with God, praying, studying scripture, being witnesses, casting spiritual nets, and preparing for the harvest. 
We've been given great promises in scripture, great promises that no human could ever accomplish, that only God could accomplish. And we get to see how God saved, will save, or God saves, saves, and will save. But we have this to look forward to as the end result of salvation. This is when salvation becomes complete, when his people enter into heaven and enter into his presence forever. That's when salvation is complete. It's not complete when we are filled with the Holy Ghost and baptized in Jesus' name. That's just the first step. It's fully complete when that new creation happens. Revelation chapter 21, verses three through four. Man, this is a hard one to read without crying, so please bear with me. I might not cry. We'll see. Y'all know I feel my feelings. Uh, (laughs) Revelation 21, three and four. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people. This is a part that makes me cry. And God himself will be among them. Have any of you ever experienced sorrow before? Yeah. One day, this scripture says that he will wipe every tear from their eye. And there will be no longer, or there will no longer be any death. No more pain. There will no longer be any mourning. No more sorrow or crying or pain, the first things have passed away. The things that we experience today, one day, will be fulfilled and completed and created new. The new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem. God is creating a new environment for his people to enjoy. One that is not corrupted like this world is. One that's not full of pain and hurt and sorrow and anguish and sickness and and death one that is new and that's full of life, that's full of hope, full of promise, full of love, full of all the good and wholesome things that God intended. This is the end result of salvation. This is the hope that we are expecting and therefore we prepare for. As I said earlier, Acts chapter two, verse 38. The reason why I bring that up is because Peter was given the keys to the kingdom. That's what scripture says. So when he preached to them that Jesus was the Messiah and he was crucified, the natural result of that message was they felt convicted and realized that they had sinned. And then they asked, what do we do? I'm sure feeling hopeless, understanding that that they had just sinned and killed the very promise that they were looking for and anticipating so Paul, uh, Peter's response to that question, what do we do? A moment of hopelessness was Acts 2 and 38. Repent. Apologize for your sins. Confess them to God. And then turn around. Turn away from that life. And then be baptized in the name of Jesus. Why? For the remission of sins. The removal of the record of sin in your life. And then you will be filled with the Holy Ghost. Verse 39, I love tacking that one on because it shows that that wasn't just for that day. It wasn't just for those people who heard that message. 
It is for every person who will ever live and ever has lived on the face of the earth. The promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So today, if you haven't experienced that, I want to open it up for you first. I want to open it up for you first. And we got people that will pray with you, that will help you understand what that really means. I hope I've done okay in explaining it, but that's the first step of salvation. If you haven't ever experienced that, today is your day. And then for those of us that are in that transformation phase that we are being saved, why don't we all just close our eyes and lift up our hands and ask that God would have his perfect will, that he would give us revelation and understanding on how we're supposed to live. Jesus, we give you glory and honor today. Lord, we magnify you. We make you larger in our vision, God. Bigger than any problem we could ever experience, we expect that you'll bring victory for whatever problem we encounter. We expect that you're gonna save somebody or start to walk somebody through the steps of salvation today. We expect that you'll do that. And God, we expect that for, for us who have gone through that Acts 2.38 message, that you are going to continue to transform us. God, we look to you, the author and finisher of our faith. We look to you, Jesus, who is uh, perfect in every way. God, make us to be more like you. And we will give you glory because that's our purpose, really, is to reflect the glory of God here on this earth. In Jesus' name. Now, I'm going to do something not foreign, but for those of you who haven't ever been in a service like this before, I'm going to open up the altar too. I want to open up the altar just as a, a show of faith. That's all it is. It's, walking up here is not a magical formula, but it is a show of faith. Stepping out from where we were into new life, or at least chasing after new life. So I want to invite everybody who can to come on up to the front here. And we're just going to seek God for a minute. If you need prayer, feel free to grab, flag somebody, and we can pray specifically for you. But if you have not received the gift of the Holy Spirit, today is your day. And we will pray with you for that. In Jesus' name. Jesus' name above.